Today's guest, Max Wolf, has a pretty incredible resume of open source projects, as well as writing that he's done. I found Max to be very interesting to talk to, just because the way that he's gotten into data science is quite different from the story that I usually hear these days, and I do repeat that many times throughout the episode. I have been really excited for this conversation just because I think that Max has spent a lot of time thinking about and exploring many of the exciting models that we tend to use today for content generation and has himself built up some of these tools. To give his actual introduction, Max is a data scientist at BuzzFeed. And in addition to that work, some of the AI content generation tools he's created include AI TextGen and GPT-2Simple. This was a really fun conversation. I got to hear a lot about the various projects that Max has worked on, his time at BuzzFeed, and his thoughts on being a data scientist. I hope you enjoy the episode. Max, you're now a data scientist at BuzzFeed, and possibly a lot of our listeners might have seen some of the work you've done on AI for content generation and various fun quizzes. I want to start with how you first got into AI and how you decided to work in data science. Uh, sure, that's a good question. I'll start at the beginning. Um, technically, I've, I was, I'm in college. I was a business major, but a statistics minor. At college, I learned, learned a lot about how to use R. For those who may be more familiar with Python, R is another language most notably known for statistics and has been very popular in data science as of recently. My first job out of college was a QA engineer at Apple. And I, was, I had the consistent fear that I was going to get fired. So as a bit of a career hedge, I decided to go look into statistics and data science to see if I could do, see if, if I ever got fired, I'd just, um, I'd have a bad plan B. Statistics, um, big, the big thing was you had a lot of self-projects. One, one of the things I did was I learned Python. I didn't, wasn't taught Python. I learned Python so I could scrape data from public sources, most notably Twitter. Uh, back then, Twitter actually had a free and open API. That no longer is the case, regrettably. One of the first data science projects I ever did was um, noticing trends that I thought were unusual. The first one was with Medium. Um, Medium.com, the blogging platform, was on the rise about uh, 2012, 2013. Hacker News had a lot of submissions, a lot of meaningless thought pieces. And I was curious, like, how popular are these thought pieces? So I, Hacker News um, back then had a, has a hidden, a, actually still does have a hidden API that you can use to scrape all data. So I, I wrote a scraper. I got all the medium data and decided to aggregate, like, what, um, how many medium posts are being sent to Hacker News? Um, and how well do they perform? And um, it's my first experience with ggplot. Uh, to give an explanation, ggplot is an R plotting library. It's probably one of the most most famous plotting libraries, even even a decade later. With it, you can create um, nice looking data visualizations very quickly and theme it very easily. Um, so, um, post hack news, that went pretty well. And then um, after that, I decided to expand my horizons, just find more APIs to, to scrape the. My most successful one, successful ones were Facebook. Uh, back then, Facebook had an open endpoint that you can use um, to get data from public pages and groups. They've since closed them, unfortunately. Um, another another one was the Reddit data. Fortunately, Reddit Reddit API is still relatively open. Surprisingly, I don't think that'll last, given that they went IPO. But um, I was able to do like some analysis. Um, that was also my first experience with big data. 
um, with big data, um, red data is living. Uh, so that was my introduction to BigQuery. Uh, Big, uh, BigQuery is a data warehousing platform owned by Google. Um, with that, you can just use SQL to gather like large amounts of data. Red data was stored in BigQuery by a Google developer relations uh, person. So I was able to just do some queries and just find everything. And it was, it was like open up a whole new world of like, like what you can do with big data and data science. And I continued to do that, continued to like find things to scrape. Now getting to AI. In order to find like new trends, I keep an eye on Hacker News, see what's popular. And the thing, uh, one popular thing was a, a technique called style transfer. Neural style transfer is, uh, is a method to like, like transfer like style of one image to another. The famous example being uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night. Um, you can you put that style like in any image, um, but it was in a GitHub repo. So I looked at it and was like, wow, this is like really cool, but I could not understand code at all, but it looked really cool. And I was able, and I was able to be able, was able to run it on my system. And that also taught me how to use Docker, which is a data science skill that more people should know. And I'm surprised people don't talk about containers and how often they are. But I was, I was able to run them all. I was like, wow, this is so cool. I wish you could do more, more of this. And then I guess years later, I... Um, in terms of like text, um, text content generation, there was a Twitter account called uh, Robo Rosewater, which was for Magic the Gathering, the, the collectible card game. Um, it used AI, used a AI to generate text for cards um, using recurring neural networks. And then this was before like the common like um, LSTM approaches that, uh, that became more popular. I followed that. That was like opened my eyes to like the promise of content generation. Um, eventually, I, f- I figured out uh, Keras, another post of Keras, which is a ten, was it was TensorFlow-based um, independent package at the time. Now it's in native to TensorFlow um, as a high-level library. And it had examples, and it was very easy to read, just very easy to like, reverse engineer, then create my own like models without that too much effort. Um, and it, it helped like, open my eyes to a lot of AI. Eventually, I became confident enough um, in my data science skills and working with Keras that I, I was, I was not, um, at that time, I was about maybe four to five years working at Apple at my my skills weren't growing technically. So I decided to just I think it was time, time to move on. And I tried, left Apple, tried to get a data science job. And eventually I did. And at BuzzFeed, which is where I am now, and I've been there for about five years and I'm enjoying every second of it. That's awesome. Yeah. I I feel like your, your journey into data science is really interesting because at least the way that I hear about people getting into AI these days, what you did sort of seems flipped on its head in the sense that at least for me and a lot of people I know, the way they get into AI tends to be, oh, look at all these exciting models that are being put out there every day. And I think people get excited about, you know, the cool math that goes on in there and let me tinker around with PyTorch or Keras and get, you know, these things working of, oh, cool, I can create this, you know, image recognition model. And only later, do people start having this realization of like these data and software engineering components and things like Docker are actually really important Mm -hmm. for this too. When previously at the beginning, it's just like, oh, let me play around with all these cool things in like a Jupyter notebook. And what I'd love to know is how the way you got into data science, since it really seems that it started more from the, let me figure out how to scrape and work with data perspective. I'd love to know how that influences and informs the way that you do data science today? Uh, sure. Um, well, of course, a big thing about data science is ETL, just knowing how to process data, knowing how to visualize it, being able to describe it. 
a lot, of, a lot of reasons why I did like a lot of those blog posts is, is half, um, half informative, half teaching myself of how to like do things with data, especially since a lot of the techniques I did are not documented at all. There's no stack overflow. There's no thought pieces on like some of the more advanced uh, data science things. And with R especially, um, there's less resources with R and some of the ETL there than Python nowadays. Well, nowadays I spend about, I split my time 50-50 each. Um, for, for R, I, I just still, still use for tabular data and for ggplot. There's no Python, compar- Python comparison to ggplot despite many attempts. But then but Python, I spend more time, especially since AI, um, Python, TensorFlow. You can do it in R, I just would not recommend it. Yeah, yeah. That These days, I know most folks kind of just go at it with Python. I did have a little bit of an introduction to R myself back in college and have made very little use of it since then. But I, I do agree with you that the plotting utilities there are definitely um, far outclassed pythons. Mm-hmm. But I guess when you're only trying to plot simple things like you know loss and accuracy and that sort of thing, maybe you're not too worried about the types of visualizations that you might think That's about. True. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you've been up to at BuzzFeed since you started there as a data scientist. Sure, I've, I've done actually quite a lot of different things at BuzzFeed. Um, one of the one of the first things mm-hmm. I did um, I did working at BuzzFeed was uh, social media analysis, uh, which um, actually pairs coincidentally pairs well to like this like analysis of Facebook and Twitter I've done like over while learning data science. So now I can do that professionally and actually get paid for it. So that's nice. So that, that was the first thing I did. Just I created a few dashboards. I created some very fancy visualizations of of the data viz of like some of the of social media performance. Um, like um, like some yeah, I mentioned ggplot. I found you can put like millions of data points in ggplot, and it can do that. Um, one thing cool, cool with ggplot is you can like facet. So you can do facet like many different things. So sometimes I like make facet like uh, social media post performance by like say page. Just put it on one chart. Give them all different colors. It looks very pretty, although maybe not useful, but uh, ideally pretty and useful. Another like major thing, I guess, more on the AI, on the AI side was uh, building recommendations. Um, one um, type of content with all with all like social all like publications is uh, evergreen content. Evergreen content is content that is applicable towards that can post at any any time. Hacker News actually encourages evergreen content with special rules for that as well. Uh, so, um, what, one of the things I did was use, I built like a Keras model just to get consolidate like metadata from BuzzFeed posts and, and create a model just to, to be able to identify like, is this post evergreen? And if so, can you like uh, surface it? BuzzFeed also has an internal tool called uh, PubHub. We've written, we've written about it on a tech blog, BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed tech blog, tech.buzzfeed.com. Um, we've talked like some uh, technical advances. We have a pub which helps mm-hmm. the social curators like uh, schedule and plan content um, to be posted to social media. So one of my one of my initial things working at BuzzFeed is to um, help uh, help like analyze performance of uh, scheduled content to see if there's a way to optimize like uh, is there a way to sh- improve sharing. And and another thing is to use like evergreen recommendations. So we have like UI. So social like here's evergreen content. This evergreen content might work well for this particular like Facebook page or at this particular time. Um, which saves a lot of time for curators and also helps improve like aggregate performance as a whole. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting set of things. And I know that in general, BuzzFeed tends to be at least somewhat data driven, right? About the way it produces content and knows that along the lines of the work you've done, this sort of content performs well in, in these domains. And one thing I'd love to dig into a little bit to the extent that you can share is just as a data scientist, you can scrape all this information about how certain content is performing on particular platforms at particular times and all of that. And in the work you've done, how do you feel about 
the best way to make this kind of information useful and actionable for decision makers when you're trying to decide what content to put out. That's, oh, you're getting to my second topic, which is that building dashboards. Dashboards are always a thing because all the, all the tutorials on it, it's all proprietary software. Like there's no very few good open source, despite many attempts. Like every open source, like say Shiny or Plotly Dash has a lot of caveats. So there's a lot of enter- enterprise only software that is for like um, when I when I was interviewing for data science positions, there was one job that was like, oh, we want you to build like a completely comprehensive dashboard. And then I looked like, is, I don't know if that's even possible in like a given open source software. And I, then I looked up and it turns out they were using a proprietary software called Looker, which is a popular BI tool. And when I brought that up, when I brought that up to the interviewers, they were not happy about that. That you could you couldn't do it open source, but you have to use a BI tool. That, that I didn't think that was particularly fair, but it's a popular like. One thing I want to do open source is to create like my own dashboard software. I, that's like one of my projects I have marked up is for like a new new generation of open source, actually free uh, dashboarding software that's high performance. But uh, I'm getting back getting back to Looker. Uh, Buzzfeed Buzzfeed does use Looker to build dashboards. Um, one thing you can do is you build it with tiles. There's, there's some overlap with uh, software like Mode, Mode Analytics. That's also probably which like mixes notebook, notebooks and dashboards. Um, you build dashboards. Um, Mo, uh, Looker offers like um, connection with the data warehouse. BuzzFeed is a BigQuery company, which works well with my BigQuery background. So, um, so connects to the BigQuery BigQuery data store. Um, it has its own looker looker markup, uh, so you can like relate data and just be able to clearly like. But the big thing about Looker is that it's it can be easily used by non-technical people to build their own dashboards. So, um, although data, other data scientists at BuzzFeed can optimize dashboards. We get we, there's a lot of flexibility for for users to be able to like customize themselves and like add like fe- features or filters in order to get the data they want, and also with the correct data visualizations and so and also alerting too. Uh, like we we can have like you can set like Looker just like send an email to, um, or email report with data viz and or its tables of relevant metrics. It's, it's good productivity software. Yeah, yeah. So I guess what I'm taking away from that is you know, as a data scientist you have a particular background and so, you know, you can maybe make sense of a lot of the data you see as it comes in different forms and tables, charts, Mm -hmm. whatever. And so from taking that raw data to the point where somebody on the other end is going to use and look at this in order to get feedback on how decisions they've already made went and how to make future decisions, these dashboards are a really great way just because the easy visualization provides them the exact sort of feedback that they need in order to look at various features of the data or get a sense of what went on where and really get to the heart of what it is they're looking for. I imagine that in the development of these dashboards, it's probably, I can imagine it's a bit of a back and forth, right? Because you've got sort of this internal customer, maybe somebody who is using the dashboard in order to make decisions. And so there's probably got to be some back and forth of how do I design this to meet the specific needs of this person who's making decisions using it. exactly. Um, I do spend a lot of time working with the stakeholders on like the, on the dashboards, and I, I go to um, attend meetings as well. Um, the, the, for, for example, like the dashboards I do to analyze so, uh, social post, post performance. I, um, I I um, I talk to social curators who are the ones uh, posting to BuzzFeed content social media. I, I talk with them, um, show them dashboards. Like if they ping me to add a feature, I add the, I add the feature, and it, it, it's it worked out pretty well. Yeah. So. This, this process of, I guess, being a data scientist, you know, there's a lot of various things that go into the job that you've pointed out. So there's understanding the data. There's a very small part, as you've pointed out in some posts, of actually doing modeling 
and all the cool AI stuff for people first get into. And then there's this managing of business intelligence and then also looking at various stakeholders. And you wrote this great blog post a while back that was called Real World Data Science. And I think that you started with a lot of a lot of great insights there. I'd love for you maybe just to summarize having spent so long, you know, in this in this path yourself, what some of the main takeaways have been for you in your time as a data scientist. And you know, say you're speaking to somebody who is at the beginning of their career path in data science or thinking about it, what what would you want them to know? Uh, sure. Uh, to give more context on on, on that blog post, um, I posted that blog post about a year, I guess about a year after I joined BuzzFeed. And I guess at then I was still a little bit of a newbie, maybe a little arrogant to like presume I know all about data science a year in as my first data science job. Um, actually, I do think that blog post holds up. Uh, we'd be linking the blog post to like description of the podcast. Sure. So mm-hmm. absolutely. So um, that blog post, um, uh, what uh, what happened there is there was a medium post on Hacker News. It's just like saying, um, here's like how do you k nearest neighbors? Like and just then I looked at like sidebars, like oh he's like all little things, little data science things to be real data scientists. Like no, that's not that's not uh, like I even now like five years into data science, I spend a lot a lot of my time is like things that do not appear in blog posts at all. I think like data, data science has, especially since like towarddatascience.com has like monopolized long tail SEO and all things data science. Like a lot of the techniques have been like pretty old. Like you have like um, T- a bag of words, TFIDF. What's the difference between accuracy and ROC, AUC? Is like a lot of tropes that are very important data science, I'll, I'll admit. But there's a lot of new techniques that, that are, at, I think, as important, if not more, but no one ever blogs about them. But any blogs about them would be very boring. So there's a little bit of a select, selection bias. The new term nowadays is MLOps. Um, with MLOps, um, like it's about like getting the infrastructure. It's about getting the about like how to flow data, how to like manage data, how to warehouse data. It's like data engineering's had increasing amount of overlap with data science nowadays, um, and and data science expect to know also how to like engineer data, how to do guess the business aspects like cost benefit analysis. Give give like a practical example. Um, I, of course, you're familiar with VQM plus Clip. Mm-hmm. Um, the big big thing about like any AI image generation um, is is compute. It's a very expensive. Um, you need to figure out how to use GPUs. It's pretty much impossible without some tricks to be able to do like a start like VQM plus clip with, at reasonable cl- quality and without like having to spend like a ton of money just trying to be able to like maintain it because it requires some very interesting DevOps techniques um, to get around that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, to get around like the massive amount of GPU compute. Like um, some models you can use CPU compute. You can quantize them. You can say uh, you can freeze them to get them fast. But some other models you have to like think about interesting interesting engineering challenges to be, be able to do them correctly at a cost-effective manner so that you actually don't lose money on them. Um, about, two, I think, 2018, 2019, I did GPT-2. That was like a new model, and that was like bigger than all the, all the models. That was basically trying to figure out how to do, maintainably deploy GPT-2 uh, was my first foray into how to do efficient data engineering. And I, um, I had a lot of mixed success, uh, mixed success with that. Yeah, can you can you tell me anything about some of the takeaways and challenges in the data engineering you did for for trying out GPT two? Uh, sure, uh, GPT two. Um, to give context, um, when I first did GPT two, um, uh, first was a, co- a collab notebook, uh, and I think I think collabs like probably one of the biggest um, boons to open source software in, in probably the last few years. Um, when you think about Indeed. it, right? But 
so uh, Colab, uh, GPT-2, multiple models released initially. The, the small one is 124 million hyperparameters, which sounds like a lot, but nowadays it's kind of pathetic. Now they have what um, we have GPT-3, which is 175 billion parameters. But mm-hmm. uh, so GPT-2 small. The issue with GPT-2 small is that it couldn't. It had difficulty fitting into memory reliably um, back back then. Um, and actually, it's kind of still now nowadays. Uh, GPT um, Collab gives you a K80 NVIDIA GPU, which has eight eight gigabytes of VRAM, and that could be very barely fit barely fit GPT two. Um, but you, to to fine tune it, but you, could, you it was possible you could do it. new techniques had to be invented to get like larger models such as graded checkpointing, which are still used today for like the super giga ultra models. But one reason why I made I made GP2 simple was to be able to packageize like the trained fine-tuned GP2 model and be able to like deploy it in like a in like a Docker container. Eventually, I, I settled on Cloud uh, Google Cloud Run, which was new at that thing, which is similar to like say Amazon Lambda. Other you put in you put in a container, uh, Docker container that you, you can call the container to serve like requests. So um, I experimented with doing GP2 in like a doc in a Docker container. Um, look, big, big thing about Cloud One is, scale, is scaling to zero. If you like uh, talk about efficiency, you keep, if you leave it on one hundred percent efficiency, that um, like all the cost benefit analysis assume one hundred percent efficiency, which is never the case. But with things like scale to zero, which Cloud Run does, then you can don't all have to assume one hundred percent efficiency, um, which makes deployment a lot sooner. So, and also Cloud One Cloud Run lets you scale to infinity. So um, when my when my one of my models went viral. Uh, it could scale mm-hmm. up to that traffic without any issue. Although cost-wise, it wasn't great, obviously. But it's I think for an easy deployment, we could pl- deploy a lot of models and scale quickly without GPUs. That that was an interesting thing, and that's why like DevOps. Like there's no like, there are several blog posts about how to uh, how to like deploy models, but um, they are they suit they are very optimistic and don't reflect like some of the realities and constraints of deployment. And even I guess. Like, like even even now with like BuzzFeed, I've the way deploying models to BuzzFeed is a little, little more complicated. That's it's been like multiple months just trying to figure out how to do it efficient efficiently as well, working with data engineers. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of considerations that go on in doing this. I think because there are so many different techniques that you can use, and with with today's models, I guess this really depends on where you are and if you actually have any real use for them. Mm-hmm. But as as you pointed out, once they get large enough, once the data gets large enough you already have this problem of, I can't fit all the computation I want to do on a single GPU. So then you have to start worrying about the model parallel, the data parallel, mm. and then all of this other stuff comes in of communication overhead. How do I balance things? How do I synchronize gradients? All of those yeah. really fun considerations that go in there. And then what you're speaking about too, I think these these packaging questions, I feel like even a lot of people in ML who maybe are familiar with data, data and model parallel, haven't thought about those quite as much of, you know, how do you containerize things? How do you set up endpoints that you can ping? And how do you deploy these in such a way that people can can easily do inference with all of that? And then how that interacts with the compute that's getting used every time you do inference. So there's, as you pointed out, just a lot of a lot of really interesting questions there. And the the process of doing these models, I feel like to an extent, especially as we've gotten into the GPT era, because the modeling side has been a lot of just scaling up transformers, mm-hmm. right? And so there isn't there's definitely innovation going on around transformers and people are coming up with cool ways to, you know, try to play with attention, make it more efficient as opposed to the n squared computation that goes on in general, but a lot of the advances we've seen are just from that scaling hypothesis. Take the big language model and make it even bigger. And so 
as you're you're pointing out here, a lot of the the interesting stuff going on right now is on the software and data engineering mm-hmm. side of how do we actually deploy these things and make them work in training and an inference. I, I think the, I think the work on like making transformers small smaller is, is more interesting. Uh, big the big innovation I think mm-hmm. in Bert um, past years was the Stillbert um, by the by the Hugging Face team. Um, the Stillbert um, mm-hmm. is is a variant of Bert, which is which was distilled, which gets about the same performance as the largest Bert, but much much smaller. It's about sixty hyperparameters, and so you can actually f- reasonably deploy that in, in the thing. While just deploying the big Bert would be is a, a major technical task. Right. Yeah. You definitely you definitely don't want to deploy like a three hundred billion parameter model and ask it to do inference that frequently. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that other work too, along with Chinchilla, for example, right, scaling down the size of the model a little bit and then maybe just training it for more tokens has that benefit of even outperforming a four times as large model. And then you get that inference time benefit, too. Mm-hmm. So I think there is definitely a lot of considerations just in terms of how do we extract the right performance out of these. And I think that distillation is one promising way. The other ways that we can sort of pursue scaling by maybe training for longer is another promising way. But I guess, you know, the end goal here, right, is that eventually these models want to be deployed somewhere and used for inference. And so there's a very strong motive to pursue making them smaller and maintaining the kind of performance we're seeing out of these super large models. Exactly. I think there's a, and there's a lot of trick. There's a lot of tricks. Like um, the big, the big, big trick with I saw with like um, Im- ImageN, which is what Google Google's new text training model they announced a couple of days ago. Um, they use a trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, the input is a t- is a t- is a frozen T5 model, which is a, a very large text text. Uh, I think it was um, all all types of content uh, model. One of one of their Omni models, but they they instead of like putting in, feeding images, they just froze the text. Um, from previously trained model, and they actually got a lot of mileage out of that. So I thought that was very interesting. I think the I think the secret towards more efficient generation will be um, just um, high pre-training, especially on like image generation. There's a lot of good papers on very good quality with, on image and and text. Yeah, this was image was super interesting to me. I think just as you pointed out, how their text encoder that frozen T5 model, you know, you didn't have this thing that went on and in the pre-training portion of, of Dolly 2, right? For example, where it was trained with that clip objective mm-hmm. and there's that explicit inclusion of images and the whole contrastive thing to try to coax the image and text embeddings to be similar to one another. So the way the way that Imogen differed from that, I thought was super interesting. But now that you've brought that up and we're thinking a little bit about this AI for content generation stuff, mm-hmm. I'd love to get a little bit onto some of your work about AI for content generation. First off, though, I'd, I'd love to ask about what made you interested in the idea of AI content generation in the first place and you know what you think some of the, the benefits of having these tools is. Uh, sure. The truth about me getting interested in AI content generation was to create better shitposts. The the very first um, experiment into text generation was Markov chains, of course, which is like the prototype of, of uh, how you always do a text generation. Um, it was actually did it on scraping GitHub uh, repo- uh, top GitHub repository. So you had like create your own like type of GitHub projects just by using Markov chains. Um, it had interesting results, and that's and then eventually you, you get to actual much better with RNNs, get LSTMs and and transformers. Things get much fun for there. But I, um, I'm interested more in content generation, which is more for fun. It's not for like 
automate, make my life easier. But I think there's a lot of fun things that avoid like some of the have a human anchor bias. And like humans, we're just avoid like avoid certain like types of thoughts. But um, of course, AI is systemic bias, but anchor bias, I think AI, uh, like AI with the t- temperature, if you do like temperature, just you deliberately choose things, um, choose like answers that are that are less optimal. And with that, you can like mutate to more interesting ideas that the human may not otherwise have thought of. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So what you're distinguishing there, if we can spend a second on that, are, are these two types of bias. So we've talked about, I guess, the type of bias people mostly think of these days is the, the second one you pointed out, the systematic bias that comes right. out of the AI systems. And so this human anchor bias has to do with sort of the, the deliberate choice. It's more on the, on, the create, on the creative aspect, yes. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Can you elaborate, I guess, a little bit more on, on what that looks like? Um, I think a good example is uh, uh, like the AI art. Um, you, if you've seen like a lot of AI art, a lot of them are very surreal. I think um, like things that more humans would not like think uh, think about uh, or like ever ever illustrate. I think that's a, like a good example of like anchor uh, like avoiding the anchor bias. Like humans, like um, I know a lot of, even even like create like some of the some of the very like it gets the dolly too. Like a lot of like grizzly bears. Like very if you've seen like the Twitter accounts, I've done like very cute things. Like grizzly bears doing like calculus. Grizzly bears at the stock market. Um, so mm-hmm. there, there, there are artists that do surreal, uh, do some surreal things. But I think uh, op- there are opportunities there for like things that humans would not easily do. And then from that, humans can feed back into it. I don't think um, there's a lot of discussion about like AI AI replacing artists. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think I, th- I think it's, it's going to be collaborative. I think AI is more of a tool for like creative art. And um, I think there's a lot of potential that hasn't been realized yet. And I wish um, Dolly 2 and, and ImageGen would be open, would be released and more publicly available so that that could be more realized. Yeah, it was it was a little bit disappointing that those two weren't released publicly. And ImageGen especially, I think, you know, just looking at the, the insane realism of the outputs that it has would be really interesting to look at how that, that coheres with, with artists. At the very least, I guess, you know, we've we've had these clip plus view QGON tools so people can can tinker with something that at least approximates what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. And so you can still do that uh, image generation from whatever text you're going to input. Mm-hmm. So at the very least, there's some tools around there. But yeah, my hope is that some of these more advanced tools can be open source in the future because it does seem like this idea of, of humans coming together with AI systems and this this joint creation there's there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff going on there definitely so going on a little bit to thoughts on some of these these existing models we can maybe step back a little bit the moment recently of course that brought about a lot of what's going on with clip and dolly and all of that was when gpt3 came out and people got really excited about it after somebody posted some code snippets at a generator. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and you made a blog post of your own where I think you said, when a cool-looking magical thing gets the attention of VCs, discourse tends to spiral out of control, mm-hmm. which I really liked. How do you feel about the discourse around GPT-3 and its child models today now that we've had it around for a bit? And do you have any thoughts on just the, the effects of this sort of hype? around models like GPT-3? I, I, fortunately, I think the hype around GPT-3, as that specifically, has cooled down a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I've actually been using it more for like professional things. I, I, I use GPT-3 unironically, and I've had some like, I've had good results from it. I won't spoil them. 
it's always, it's always good to keep an eye on like how other models. Well, well, the big thing with GPT three is they added instruct model, which actually performs very well. I'm very surprised by how well the instruct model performs. That was released in January. Okay, uh, back on topic. Mm-hmm. I, uh, back, back on top. Uh, GPT three. It, do, it does still take. It, it's not perfect. GPT three. When when I wrote that wrote that blog post, it was it was like it was unreasonable amount of media frenzy. There was, was a lot of clickbait, and I I strong dislike complete mis I, I dislike misleading clickbait anyways um there's like people like oh you know, this ai can do anything well this um it's similar like the like the the ai generated art controversy will gpt3 replace writers i've um two two years later that clearly isn't the, that's clearly not what's going to happen um, um but there has been a lot of interesting writing tools been lots there's been a few startups that actually have been performing well based on gpt3 but it is expensive, though. So I, I do want about the cost economics of running GPT three, but that's that's top for another day. Um, from from creative from a creative aspect, I I, I think GPT three is um, is a very good idea generator, which is part of some cases I've used for myself to generate ideas. But it's not it's not it does not going to it's not going to comment. It's not going to like replace authors. It's not going to replace coders. I've I've, I've used Codex. Um, you can go go GitHub Copilot. I've I've done some experience with that. I'm I've gotten some I've gotten some fun outputs there as well. But I don't think that would place. I don't think that would place like coders. It won't obsolete Stack Overflow. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the consensus that really people came to was that you know this is going to be a great augmentation tool, right? right? But in no way are software engineers, front end engineers, going to be replaced by it anytime soon. And mm-hmm. I think, as you pointed out, a lot of just immediate media hype and frenzy over it that happens in the wake of oh, we did this cool thing is is just going to occur and drive the discourse to just all these weird places. And then eventually people tease the model a little bit more, understand better how it actually performs. And then by this point, of course, the hype has really subsided a little bit. But it's always interesting to see after the first release of one of these models. Of course, whoever's releasing it, people talking about it initially are going to be like, look how amazing this thing is. And probably not when to spend as much time talking about the limitations. But it's pretty clear what they are. And I know that a lot of work on things like even, you know, basic common sense reasoning, right? GPT-3 does not do super well on those types of tasks. But the, the answers can be fun at some point. Though. That's good. It's good shit posting. They can be fun. Yeah, I really liked the, the prompt in the Instruct GPT paper. Why is it important to eat socks after meditating? And both Instruct GPT and GPT-3 had had some really interesting takes on it, but neither of them were like, you know, this is, this is a dumb idea. That was, that was pretty fun. So you, you note at the end of the article on GPT-3 and tempering expectations that somebody using the OpenAI API professionally should know a couple of things. And the final bullet there I thought was really interesting and I want to spend some time digging into, and this was about AI-generated content ownership and oh, copyrights. Boy. this will this will be fun and i guess as you you're probably aware this has been a point of contention recently i know that the there was something called the artificial inventor that created some work and its inventor wanted the ai system to be on the copyright for that work and initially in the united states at least they they got rejected for this Mm -hmm. so i guess having worked on some ai tools for content generation yourself how do you how do you approach that question of whether AI systems can be granted ownership of or copyright over work that they generate. I'll start off saying I am not a lawyer. 
But I, I mm-hmm. but uh, especially for some AI AI generated content for BuzzFeed, I've been keeping an eye on the laws and the legalities of like some uh, content, especially with like AI generated images. Like how much because that that way it's at least very obvious to see if it's saying overfitting on like the input data. So if it's doing that, so and the the issue is there's there's no good legal precedent. I know um, you mentioned like AI, um, there's I know there's a little bit of a meme saying AI computer generated content um, can't um, can't be copyrighted, but that's not that's not a legal precedent. That's there there are concerns that haven't been legally tested, and I honestly hope they do get tested at some point, so I don't have to think about so we have like something we can concretely refer to. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the the good TLDR take on it. There's just not much of a legal precedent, and I guess that's the case with most things about AI these days. There's a nice attempt to take existing law and then apply it mm-hmm. and interpret it so as to speak about these AI systems. But really, if you if you're going to be very specific about how the laws were written, what was in mind when they were being written, it probably was not with these AI systems. In, in the imagination of the people who were writing those laws. I guess another thing that I thought was interesting about this, this AI inventor piece was, and I think this maybe speaks to the need for revision of the laws themselves, but if I remember right, the defense that was being written took a pretty clear interpretive stance on the idea that this AI system was able to independently of any human input generate the content that they were trying to copyright with the AI system's name on there. Independently is very, is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Exactly, exactly. I thought that was doing a lot of the, the heavy work there because I, I'm kind of doubtful that they could have developed an AI system that independently of any human input whatsoever because that would, that would have to mean not just independent of input at inference time, but independent of data that was fed into it during the training process. And curation like of that. data is augmented by human bias. So that exactly is a problem. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like if you if you try to interpret these questions according to existing existing laws and fit it into what's going on there, you run into a lot of trouble because you're trying to squeeze out of these questions where it's pretty clear AI systems can't totally independently of human input create things on their own. That's definitely not the case right now. And so I think that this just calls for better understanding what we want the laws to be. Are there like trade-offs in allowing the systems to be on copyrights and things like that? So we've we've talked, I guess, a little bit about the various ideas just around AI for content generation. I'd love to talk a little bit about some of your, your fun projects and one-offs. I think that you referenced a couple of these a little bit earlier on, but Let's actually start with this one I thought was really fun. You trained an AI system to generate Pokemon designs mm-hmm. at one point, and BuzzFeed released a quiz allowing users to create their own. Tell me a little bit about the the system you used for that. If I remember right, you used uh, Rue Dolly fine-tuned on original images of all the Pokemon, right? Uh, that's correct. Uh, I'm going to give an example uh, to elaborate more on that. Uh, Rue Dolly is um, a model released by Esper Bank, a, uh, a, Russian, a Russian-based financial service. It really, um, Rue Dolly is basically, it sort of uses the same technique that um, OpenAI used for their own Dolly. Just um, train on images, but um, uh, given given text, uh, generate images using a using a, v- a variational autoencoder as a codebook as a decoder. Uh, so um, so uh, some someone committed uh, contributed uh, a fine tuning notebook to that repository, and and I, I had a hunch. Um, I, I knew I knew um, big thing about these type models that so you need normalized data sets, and I figured that Pokemon. I, I knew how, um, that was normalized data set. I knew 
there's an there's a public API that lets you gather that gather all the images. So I wrote out wrote a quick scraper, got a Pokemon data, and then I just fed it to the model. And as a rarity from the first time I tried it, it actually worked out. It worked out perfectly. That never happens with hmm. AI content generation. That you get it right on the first try. So then I I generate a few. They were all good. I post I posted on Twitter. Um, posted Twitter and went viral to about about uh, ten over ten thousand over ten thousand retweets. Posted to the Pokemon subreddit about uh, I think thirty thousand upvotes. So the, uh, people 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 really liked it. I generated a lot more. The good thing the good thing about um, um, this is on this is on a collab is trained on a collab GPU. Um, the the model itself mm-hmm. the model itself is about I think one point two billion. It shows how um, shows how much like um, efficiency of fine tuning has gone gone over the years. Um, so um, I, I, I added a few features such as the generate in bulk. So, um, so, so one of the things I did, it trade like hundreds, thousands actually of Pokemon. Then I, uh, I was able to do that and it just put into a notebook. I was able to um, share it. But for, for BuzzFeed, I've done like a lot of, I've done, we've done a lot of AI stunts on AI projects. But this Pokemon was one of them um, since it went viral. So I, I generated like a lot of Pokemon. I also trained a separate Rudali model on only the first 151 Pokemon, which uh, using using the style that was um, that was back in the 1996 by the um, mm. by the Pokemon principal artist, um, so that created a much different Pokemon style, which um, very manifested too. I also I also did a few more like one offs of Pokemon. I trained um, I trained po- train only one Pokemon, just a, one Pikachu, and then it actually it actually worked and created like Pikachu abominations. Trade on two. Two Pokemon, and it actually did, did actually did do hybrid Pokemon of those two, which are very discernible, and I was impressed by that. So this is more like more like one shot and two shot, with similar logic with that. Yeah, the the one shot and two shot behavior of these systems is super surprising. So it's kind of cool that you were able to see that with with Pokemon as an example. I was going to ask you about the difficulty of, of training this system, anything that surprised you. But it sounds like, as you said, you were able to just kind of do it in a collab notebook and it worked the first time. Uh, there, was, there, was one, there was one interesting is it has to deal with the learning rates. For, the, for those that know, uh, learning rates often go on a schedule and there's been a lot, lot of new techniques on how to best schedule learning rate training. Um, this, um, this notebook used something called one cycle learning rate. And I had to look up like, what the hell is one cycle learning rate? So I had like so I had to do like deep dive doc- documentation like tuna parameters because if the learning rate's too high, it, it model overfits. I think actually it did overfit the first time, but that's obviously fixes to have a lower learning rate so the model can't doesn't memorize it or and or load the steps. Um, one thing I did just tweak like the learning the one cycle learning rate parameters in PyTorch and actually that actually worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. The overall sense of like all oh, the learning rate schedules is like start out high then go gradually lower so that the model doesn't convert model doesn't escape a local uh converges and doesn't like go off to another local minimum yeah yeah i guess that's kind of the main idea behind a lot of these fancy techniques and you can it's it's interesting how people manage to find ways to make things more and more complicated just to squeeze out like every last bit of accuracy or performance out of these things it's, and it's a cheap way actually understand yeah yeah it's it's, it's opposed to, like doing new gpus like i know like i think adam like i like, you know people like oh adam or add eta factors like a lot of it goes like which one takes more gpu memory so a lot, lot of like other constraints that are um requires again, again back, all back to engineering things that don't aren't really discussed by blog posts yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I guess a lot of a lot of the things we've talked about today, especially on the software engineering side and how that relates to data science you've pointed out, aren't really in blog posts. And it's interesting, but also makes a lot of sense how that just kind of continues today because there's topics that people are going to be naturally attracted to. And so 
a lot of the ones that tend to be tend to come up, I, I guess, a lot in the actual career of a data scientist just aren't things that are super amenable to catchy blog posts. Mm-hmm. So I guess as a, as a final thing on, on one-offs, you referenced this earlier, but you had a fun Twitter post in which you asked GPT-3 for ideas on data science and ML for a roundtable discussion. Mm-hmm. If I remember right, in particular, you asked it to brainstorm like silly ideas and topics that right. BuzzFeed data scientists had probably never talked about before. Mm-hmm. Did you did you end up discussing any of those topics? I'm curious how that went over. Oh, uh, I'm glad you asked. Um, to give more context, um, that was me testing GPT Instruct. Um, one of the things you can do with GPT GPT three Instruct is to give like idea uh, commands such as bra- uh, brainstorm is one of the easiest things. And the GPT, um, if you did that on the previous models of GPT three, you it would not work well. It'd probably go on a tangent. It'd probably go on a rant. Probably say something kind of offensive. But if you do brainstorm brainstorm a list of ideas for BuzzFeed. Uh, data scientists discuss, um, they would do that. So uh, give more context, um, Buzz, at BuzzFeed, we, um, every Wednesday, we have like a little bit of a gathering thing. We talk about like a notebook, uh, talk about, like a book or research paper. Um, but we, we were starting to run, run out. Uh, we finished the book, so we run out of ideas. Um, one thing I did, so hey, um, why don't we ask an AI for ideas? And so I, I put the GPT-3. Um, it, it gave some ideas that were actually feasible, which is what I ended up posting on Twitter. And so after we did talk about um, their ideas, such as can you how to use data science to optimize your laundry, how to use data science to optimize your dating, um, how to use data scientists to save the world, which are just like mm-hmm. some other fun things like that. We just ended up discussing early. So then we asked, so then we decided, oh, why don't we have the AI do discussion for us? That's fun. And then it actually did a better job than us. And I was very offended by AI superiority. Maybe one day we'll we'll just cancel all of our meetings and have some GPTX talk to itself instead of spending 30 minutes of our time on a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. So I guess where I'd like to end, and we spent some time on this earlier, just as some closing thoughts. We've kind of already articulated your your journey as a data scientist and how I think that tends to differ from the way people think about it nowadays. And I can see in, you know, the way you approach problems and sort of think about doing new things, you you come at it from, I think, maybe a different perspective from like a lot of young people today who are just starting to get into AI, thinking about all of the modeling aspects. And so if you could leave somebody who is maybe just at the start of their journey, we um, sort of already asked a version of this question, but if you could leave somebody with just one gem of advice as to how to really effectively become good at doing data science, what advice would you leave them with? Keep an open mind. Um, as I, men- I mentioned, like there's a lot of a lot of there's, data science is a lot of new things coming out. There's no like one good um, perfect solution for all problems. Like ev- every problem has different th- ways to approach it. Um, I'd encourage to do unique things as well. Um, don't, don't necessarily just use like oh um, oh do the Titanic data set and Kaggle. Like, and then I'm a data scientist. Um, there's like, you can find, try and find your own data set, um, which I mean was a little bit harder because Twitter and Facebook closed down. They were very fun data sets. Data science, of course, um, rewards like creativity. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're creative, and that's also one of the eight, like AI. So AI can help creativity, which can help all improve data science. So that's, that it's all connected. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think that data science is one of those professions where, there's a huge impact on the way we do things. And there's just so many different functions that have to happen in, you know, in, in one person and one job role 
that it's almost a necessity of the job to, as you said, keep an open mind, mm-hmm. be ready to learn new things, try out new techniques, and it's, it's always evolving. Well, Max, thank you so much for spending the time chatting with us. If our listeners would like to learn more about you and the work you're doing, where would you point them? Uh, you can um, you can point them to my, uh, to, to my blog, um, minimaxir, M-I-N-I-M-A-X-I-R.com. Um, a Twitter at the, um, my Twitter account is um, minimaxir, at minimaxir. Um, also, um, before we close, I want to add that BuzzFeed is hiring a senior uh, data scientists and senior ML- machine learning engineers. Awesome. Well, with that job post, we can end for today. Uh, thank you again, Max, for, for spending the time. No problem. Glad to be here. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles from thegradient.pub and our substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you liked the episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and feedback. See you in the next episode.